get your smoke on, I'll get your chill on, let's get these conversations on, crawling on moms, and anybody who's living life, the Pop Moms Podcast is- Work, work, work. Better work, bitch. Oh my god, okay, are you kidding me? I, are you guys working right now? Because we are chatting things about work. Work-life balance, work history, bad covers of Rihanna work. Or good covers of Rihanna <laughs> I work. I mean, <laughs> flawless covers of Britney Spears' You Better Work Bitch, as you just heard. Uh, but work ethic. I think in a capitalist society, talking about work is talking about life because our lives are work. And as somebody who has resisted that my entire life and ultimately now works for myself because of my resistance to work, I have some unique perspectives on it, I feel like. You also work for yourself, Kate, yes? So I went like the opposite way, though. Like I drove I drove all my time, energy, passion into climbing the corporate ladder. Oh, And yes. coming at it from that... And then having a realization once I achieved what I wanted by the age that I wanted to with the title that I was striving for, that none of it fucking matters. So then going back to understanding what I wanted truthfully out of life, out of work, out of my passion, and re-finding the work-life balance that now I know as I head into my future is going to be something that I protect because I've seen both sides of what it looks like. Oh my gosh, yes. And I think maybe to start, we should revisit our upbringing. What was work ethic like in your family? Like, what did what did your parents do for work? I know we've talked about your mom worked at the YMCA for a while. Yep. What other jobs did your parents have? So my mom was a nurse, actually. Oh, so she yeah. okay. did part-time nursing so that it allowed her, in her mind, to be there as a parent, which she absolutely was. So what I don't want to be taken out of context is that she, I, I inherited her love of really optimizing all of my waking hours by being productive, yeah. is like what I'm trying to say. So she was a nurse, she worked 7.30 to 3.30 for as long as I can remember, and I can't remember if it was three or four days a week, but it was, it was not full time. And in addition to that, she would work for the, we would, she would go work at the Y. She had, uh, she called them, which is like the cutest thing that my mom has ever done, uh, window treatments, but like making curtains and these beautiful columns. And she was really good at what she did. She's an amazing seamstress. So she would do that. But my, my recollection of her doing that was she was always hustling. Yeah. So she would be working her normal time. She would be a full-time parent for me and my sister. And then, I mean, I remember like waking up at, you know, 11 o'clock at night and she would be in her sewing room on a deadline to get these columns or, you know, whatever she was making at that point. Cornice boards. That's always my favorite word. Interesting. <laughs> um, she would be doing that, you know, in, in her quote spare time. So 
how I internalized that is you got to go, you got to get up and get them. You got to keep hustling. If you have one job, you can have two. Yeah. <laughs> Which ultimately, you know, kind of led to my demise in a number of different ways um, as everything came to a screeching halt with like the pandemic. And I referenced the pandemic. It was the writing was on the wall well before the pandemic, but the p- pandemic just kind of put it, you know, really directly back you. in my face. And my dad, um, he worked in the pet supply industry okay so he was going to trade shows a lot he was managing accounts all over his territory i saw him succeed at that level and i saw my mom ultra busy so i basically just smashed the two together and was like you have to be very corporately successful and busy it's very interesting that you say all of that i picked up on a few things specifically that i think is an important commentary on society now which is we define success by productivity. And I had a kind of different experience. Well, different, same, same, but different. My mom, in my mind, was the ultimate worker. She was working constantly, as I saw, but she had no quote-unquote job. My mom was raising us three kids, and she is a CPA by trade, so she is an accountant, and she was just managing investments, business endeavors, all of these things that my dad was doing in retirement because my dad retired very young. So young in the scheme of life. So uh, when I, my dad worked for Microsoft for a long time. I lived in Ireland growing up because he was, you know, managing operations. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Yeah. So I lived in Dublin uh, while my dad was managing operations for Microsoft. And then he, we moved back And he was retired within maybe a year or two of us moving back to, we moved to an apartment in Redmond at first by the Microsoft campus. Then we found our house, moved there. And I feel like my dad only worked for Microsoft maybe another one or two years. And then he was quote unquote retired, which was a lot of like golfing and relaxing for a minute. But then I think he got bored, got bored. Right. And he was used to having a very vibrant work life. And he still was. He was investing with, you know, past um, colleagues of his. He was investing in his own right. He created his own business, Friends Cara, which was like an investment group of folks, you know, various things. Right. And so I was the entrepreneurial spirit was always demonstrated to me through him, which also kind of looked like you can do whatever the hell you want and be successful is how my brain was processing it all because I was so young. And then my mom, you know, same thing. Like neither of them were going to an office, but they were constantly moving, constantly working and very visually succeeding. So that was kind of my, I don't know, map, if you will, was like, just keep going, keep doing things, keep trying to meet people. I always came back to this concept of the strength of weak ties where you benefit the most from the people who don't know you well enough. And I think about that a lot in my business now that, you know, if you're spending all your time with the same people and not doing new and different things, you're not getting any new weak ties and weak ties will get you exponentially farther than your close ties, actually, because people who don't know you super well are more likely to help you. That's kind of a... You haven't, you haven't but, had a, a, the ability to go ahead and uh, dissuade them yet. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, but all that, you know, the, just a thought that comes to mind when I think about my parents and their success, because my dad was just always out doing new things, trying new things, experimenting with new investments, businesses, whatever. And that, I think, proves fruitful in the long term. And then 
as far as work ethic for me, it was kind of the demonstration of two different things where, you know, again, I saw my dad like partying a lot and relaxing a lot while being successful. So I was like, you don't have to work that hard to be successful in my mind, you know, totally negating the years of very hard work that he was doing that I was just very young and didn't see. Um, but, and then, you know, work is constant on my mom's side is what I was learning from her where like, even if you're not doing a ton of output in any given moment, like you must keep working every moment forever because that's what my mom Until always seemed to die. So I don't know. So I basically like roller coastered between all of that as I kind of tried to find my own way, my footing in the work world. I knew I was... N- I was always described as um, neurodivergent in various other ways, right? So I felt like a normal trajectory of corporate work was never in my future. And I don't know, I had the blind optimism of my dad. The like, oh, if I just relax and keep going, I'll be successful. I'll figure it out. And I found photography in high school and still went to the University of Denver to do communications. And I was thinking pre-law because everyone had always told me I was so good at arguing, I should become a lawyer. (laughs) So I was thinking I would do that all the while in the back of my mind, feeling like my neurodivergent ass would never succeed in any like normal job. And in my mind, I thought being a lawyer was a normal job, I guess at the time. Um, But so I kept doing the photography thing all the while feeling like, I don't know if I can ever make any money as an artist, but we'll see. And then left DU after a year to take a gap year because I was feeling like I still really wanted to do the photography thing and was not feeling fulfilled in my communication trajectory in college. I went to Zimbabwe to photograph lions for this conservation project called the African Lion Environmental Research Trust. And then I went and got my underwater photography, well, to do some underwater photography in Australia to get my dive masters and rescue divers certifications so that if I never went back to traditional school and was able to get a traditional job, quote unquote, I could be a dive master and make money. So that was kind of the point of the back half of my back year was like, let me get some skill in my repertoire that can make me, that can become a career if I need it. And then I went back to school to see if I could pursue photography and was a photography major at Colorado State. And that is when I met Desiree, who would, oh my gosh, who is literally calling me right now. Oh, that's the world. Her and I are on the same wavelength. I'll tell you what, man, we are telepathic and sometimes I swear. But there she is now. She became my mentor and ultimately the blueprint for what my career has been these uh, past adult years or then in this adult chapter, which is as a portrait photographer. And only in this last year have I been pivoting my business a little bit away from photography, not, not away from photography, I should say, because You're expanding it. I'm expanding. So my photography will be more focused for the first time in my life to focus on branding and personal branding to couple with the relationship coaching that I'm doing. So this is kind of a personal branding transformation, kind of like Queer Eye. You know, I basically take my clients from where they are, we do an audit of everything in their past and present, and then we transform them into the future flawless version of themselves that, you know, they do the amazing personal branding photo experience. And then of course they also, I help them through the navigating of finding a partner culminating in like, finding their dream partner is the trajectory for them. Do you ever photograph people and think that they shouldn't be together based off of how they interact during your shoot? You know, (laughs) I, (laughs) 
short answer is yes, that has happened. I think it doesn't happen a lot to me because the type of person that I am, people don't seek me out as their photographer who aren't living authentic lives, really, because I am so in your face authentic or like in your face about the importance of authenticity. I feel like those people are vibing on a different wavelength, right? Like they're not I'm not their photographer. They need some quiet wallflower photographer who's not going to be commenting on every single angle of their communication and relationship dynamic the way that I do the minute I meet people. And so, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in a circumstance where I've been like, oh, these, these people are doomed, you know? But when I worked on the ship, like, I immediately, this couple comes to mind that I photographed their wedding. And, I mean, she literally was like, I'm forcing him to marry me. And he was like, uh, she's making me propose. It was so awkward. And the whole families were there. It was so weird. I was like, you guys, you know there's another option, right? You can break up and just Or not be- talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, either take that to the grave or end this relationship now. But you know, so there have been times in my photography career where my clients aren't vetted by me and, you know, coming to me from my marketing and whatever, that yeah, I've encountered some people where I'm just like, oh my gosh. So many people are not choosing partners based on logical metrics. And now, as I'm moving into this coaching chapter where I'm doing a lot more education on, you know, behavioral, um, the behavioral science behind partnering, behind successful marriages, this concept of looking for a prom date instead of a life partner, there are just the vast majority of people flying through life, looking for metrics that don't actually add up to a long and happy partnership. And so that is a lot of the work that I do is, you know, mindset work. Ultimately, we call this the mindset audit, which is the beginning of your journey with me. But it's about getting clear about like, what are you actually looking for? You know, the cupcake dream partner design is another framework that we use to talk about that. Just getting very clear on what are the actual metrics that will land you in a long-term successful relationship how do those manifest in personality or in behavior that you can see to give a better idea of what someone's personality actually is I guess I should say and then how you know finding those people and making them your partner whatever that was kind of confusing but you're following um and it's very exciting. It's very regenerative for me. I love to analyze people's personalities in that way and, you know, their history in that way and the decisions they've made in the past and how that has shaped who they've ended up with or who they're going to end up with, who they're dating now. It's all fascinating. But ultimately, it is the dream, you know, having having found a way to work for myself in this work that I find very regenerative and fun was always... I don't know, my assumption, I always just assumed I was going to figure it out. And there was been some very rocky roads in between where, you know, taking the blueprint of my mentor's business, trying to make that my own, realizing I'm kind of trying to force a puzzle piece together that doesn't fit really. And now pivoting into a trajectory that really does fit for me, that capitalizes on all my strengths and also allows me to be like my best self for my clients is very exciting. So post-productions is kind of still in that transition we're gonna see and as this podcast unfolds we'll see this you know we'll see the unfolding of that business too and it can be fun we can talk about it more our glorious successes our glorious successes tell me about your business 
Yeah. So, I mean, like my work history is varied too. I mean, I feel like I've been working as long as I can remember. Like when I was 13 or younger, I would coach and ref uh, soccer games and then I would umpire uh, baseball games and I would uh, referee basketball games. So that was like my initial like quick earning because I very quickly realized that if I wanted to do the things without maybe the permission of my parents or if I wanted to buy things that I specifically wanted versus things that my parents wanted for me, I had to figure out a way to make that make money. Yeah. So I very quickly understood what I was going to have to do and it was get a job. So I would write in the summers. I would, I, I, I should say I wasn't working during the school year yeah. when I was like a 13. I was yeah. my summers. So I was babysitting. I was nannying. I was doing these different various sports coaching or um, offici- officiating um, situations. And then the summer before I went to high school, I got a job at two, I got, sorry, I had two jobs at uh, pizza places across the street from each other. Oh, nice. So I worked at Fazoli's and I worked at Rocky Rococo's, which if you live in the Midwest, those names will probably ring a bell. So I would rollerblade there. Cute. Uh, super funny. And then, um, you know, going to college, I worked my way through college, uh, working at restaurants. I worked at a Japanese restaurant for seven years. I worked at a Caribbean restaurant and that is where I met my husband and a bunch of my friends. Um, and then from a like real life, I guess, situation in college, I took a class on consumer behavior and maybe I guess this speaks to some of my like sociopath tendencies, but I realized you could manipulate the way that people buy things just by where you put it on a shelf in a grocery store. So that blew my mind because that made a science behind the art, I guess, of consumerism yeah. and how you can make things appeal to people. So that really kind of tickled all of my happiness places from a productivity and a working perspective. So coming out of college, um, I was marketing an international business with a focus in consumer behavior. And I started working for Kohl's department stores um, within their product development departments. Then we moved to Minnesota and I worked for Target for two years um, in their buying world. And Mm -hmm. then I worked for Amazon for four years in their 1P and 3P verticals, which is all relationship management, which I mean, I'm not going to toot my own horn here, but like I excel at that. Like, yeah. I'm highly relatable. I know when to be professional. I'm I'm really, really good at re- maintaining relationships. That's awesome. Uh, and so then come, you know, to having my third kid and realizing I wasn't going to be able to keep up this breakneck pace of working at Amazon. Yeah. And so I bowed out. Uh, I went ahead and resigned and I started working remotely with a company that was doing um, media, so creating videos for brands. Um, So I learned a lot about how consumers consume video in that job. Oh, yeah. Uh, And then the pandemic hit. I uh, I was let go. Because it was a pretty small company, um, which I think was no doubt for the best. I wasn't super happy with some of the dynamics there. Um, and so then I, me and a former coworker were like, we had always talked about starting a company, doing work uh, as like an agency for Amazon. So I started doing that. And I've been doing that ever since. And that's been fun. Um, I think that there's a lot of drawbacks to being an entrepreneur that isn't painted in a lot of like the rosy colors around being your own boss. Oh my gosh, yeah. 
So um, I also take on like side contracting gigs with companies who are looking to take my knowledge of being with, you know, three of the larger retailers and my overall experience in brick and mortar e-commerce and Amazon. Um, I do a lot of one-off projects that way uh, for companies that I've really enjoyed working with. Uh, so that's fun. But that's, yeah, that's that's kind of my work history. And yeah, I, you know I don't feel like I gave enough context in my work history, maybe. I mentioned the ship, but it's funny that you uh, brought up the um, working for yourself and entrepreneurial work just not quite being what you pictured. The reason I ended up working on the ship and what that was, was running the private studio, the Perspectives Portrait Studio for Norwegian Cruise Lines on their ships. They have a separate, they have a photo department and then they have the private studio, the Perspective Studio, which basically is a boutique photography experience, much like what I do on land. And I went and did that because after working for my mentor in college in the boutique studio portrait grind, when I came home to try to do it myself, I just was hit with this rude awakening of what it actually entailed, which is, you know, 10% very fun client experience, sales, photography, joy, and 90% sitting at a computer alone, and I was miserable. And so, and I also was coming from this very high-end studio where she's an incredible artist who's been doing this for, you know, almost 30 years now. At the time, it was 20-something years. And it, you know, it was a very well-oiled machine with incredible systems and very top-of-the-line everything. And so then to come out of college and be trying to operate at that level without actually having like the life experience and the photography experience to be operating at that level, it was just unsustainable. I wanted to be doing way more work than was profitable for what I could be charging. I just needed another perspective. So that is why I went to work for the ship. The lady who did my nails for my sister's wedding had worked in the spa on a ship and was like, you got to go work on ships. It'll be so much fun. It'll be so different than what you do on land. It'll just like be perfect for this life chapter you're in. I literally applied that weekend then I went up to Bellingham, visited a friend, and while I was up there, they were like, yeah, you are gonna leave for London on Sunday. And I, she drew a tarot card, it was like, go. And I drove home from Bellingham that night, packed all my stuff, flew to London on Sunday for a six month contract. You don't take a day off in six months, it's chaos. But it was such a grueling and important work experience for me to learn how to operate my business in a very efficient way and after that, I was able to merge the lessons I learned from this beautiful high-end boutique studio and then this like more grueling high-paced studio experience to come to the modern experience that then I offered for years. And before that, I just did so many odd jobs, you know, which all ultimately was relationship management to be better as a photographer and a business owner. But they were all over the map. Like I did valet for a while. I worked at Zoomies clothing store. I've mentioned in the past I was a bartender for five whole minutes at my school bar on campus in college. Um, I did, what else did I do? I don't know. You know, just so many odd job things. But I think it really shapes where you end up. Totally. When you kind of settle. When the I'll call it the dust. When the dust settles. Because yeah. all of the things... I either learned what it meant to be a good boss, what it meant to be a shitty boss, how I would do it if I were to do it my way, what people really valued, and how to deal with assholes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, which is every line of work ever. Yeah, totally. And expectations uh. and how you can 
hold your own in a respectful way and be respect. Like I will say like the one thing that rings true in all of those situations is like if someone's mad, if someone's happy with whatever it is, all that they want to feel is heard. Totally. So if you can come into it with that and listen, and listening is so hard for me. Don't get me wrong. Oh my gosh, I know. ADHD, listening is like, well, I'm thinking about eight other things than the conversation that we're having. So I think that was a really big eye-opening thing for me on is if I could quiet those voices, I could not only be better at what I was doing, but I could be more effective and more efficient. Oh, totally. That is so important. I know there are so many things about navigating work with ADHD that, you know, for so many years, I don't think I I attributed to having ADHD. I just thought of as who I was, you know, but the listening, the follow through, resistance to procrastination, accomplishing of many different tasks in one day, you know, that I think is the hardest part of the entrepreneurial journey and the portrait photography journey. And now my coaching business, same thing. You're just doing so many different things. There's a client management software for photographers called 17 Hats based on the concept that you are wearing 17 different hats as a photographer. You know, you're an accountant, you're a bookkeeper, you're a relationship coach, right? So much of my transition to coaching is because that is what I already was doing for all of my clients. And it was the part that felt the most regenerative to me, comparatively to the hours of staring at photos, editing, you know, so... It's, it all goes hand in hand, but I think having ADHD makes all of that juggling just a little bit more of an Olympic feat, if yeah. you will. So how do you find that in your business? Do you feel like there is outsourcing that you use to leverage or that you leverage to better get through those things or? I would say I use lists a lot and I use routines. So like I have what I do on Mondays, what I do on Tuesdays, and then how I manage the rest of the week to go ahead and, and make sure that I'm in it in the right way. I will caveat with, um, I was talking with my friend about this concept of balance and ways to hack the ADHD brain where you work for 25 minutes and then take a five minute break and you, you kind of work your day in, in chunks like that. Yeah. Well, and I always joke that like I'm more productive in that five minutes totally. than I am in the 25 minutes because I need to be busy in some aspect that isn't always staring at a computer screen. And totally. my, my a lot of my consulting work is and a lot of my my business work is too. So it's it's twofold in that way. And what I found really interesting was looking instead at why I'm ass backwards from the 25 to 5 rule. Yeah. And thinking like, wow, isn't this great that like I can put in a load of laundry and fold it and while I'm doing that, I'm thinking about how I'm going to use or I'm having intent with how I'm going to use that 5 minutes, which then makes that 5 minutes. I don't want to say pure brilliance because that sounds like an egotistical maniac, but I really do feel like that's my best work and instead of just being like society doesn't agree with how I work, I'm like is my output being compared yeah. to non like to neurotypical people and being just as well received yeah. would someone not know that me as a business owner has ADHD that me as a successful contractor at Fortune 100 companies like yeah totally i know and that i think is the difference to of being like a satisfizer versus a maximizer where if you're a person you know progress not perfection just getting it done 
well enough that it's acceptable and moving on will make your output so much more effective, you're consistent, what have you. And I, I mean, I'm the same. And I, you know, maybe that is the ADHD where I do, I have like what Trevor and I call DDD, dilly dally disorder. And I will dilly dally like a motherfucker. And then I will chaotically sprint in the most productive and efficient way and get amazing amounts of work done in a remarkably small amount of time. And that's just kind of my cycle. I dilly dally and then I slay and I dilly dally and then I slay. And it's, it's kind of always been like that. And then a person who functions that way. I mean, I think many people function in that way, whether they're working for a I think a a lot of ADHD people function that way. I have, and I think that is one of the bonus things on the internet is I think when like, I'm going to say growing up weird, because like I always felt weird and maybe that's just where I'm drawing it from, but yeah. it was really normalizing to read other people on ADHD, women with ADHD forums yeah. to hear that that's not just me. Yeah. Because then I think I got the confidence to normalize it in my own head and I started, I, I stopped the self-loathing circles of like, mm. why can't I just, because I on paper can write a project plan. Yeah. For someone who's neurotypical. Yeah. <laughs> and I can be like, here's how you're going to do it. Here's how you can break it out. And I can teach it. I myself always struggled with being able to actually uphold that because yeah. my working was so sporadic. Yeah. And I was like, what did I do when I was in person? I did the same thing. It was just acceptable because I was like, oh, do you want to go get water? Oh, do you want to go run down to the cafeteria? Oh, do you want to go do a walk around South Lake Union? Yeah. Never, ever having my performance called into question, always excelling. I will fucking say that I was able to be promoted through two pregnancies at Amazon, going into maternity leaves because I set that up so strategically. Whereas in the past, like when I was at other retailers and I had a kid, I got passed over for that. So like I, I, I figured out the ways to do it. And like, again, I guess I'm just trying to speak in this instance of like, it's not going to be the way you think it's going to be, or it doesn't have to be how, you know, so-and-so did it. It can be how you do it in your own way and you can still be successful. And that I think is an important segue into the importance of your definition of success. We're in a late stage capitalist society we define success by productivity and to the detriment of every other metric that we know to be valuable for actual human health. And our minds and our work-life balance and our sanity. I know. And I have done so much work in getting to where I am today, redefining success. You know, what does success look like? Are my needs met? Am I feeling love regularly? Am I laughing regularly? Am I moving my body regularly? Trying to redefine the way that I look at output at all. Like, why do I, I have this, you know, internal resentment that I even have to do any output. Like, can't I just lay by a stream and pick fruits with my friends? Like, isn't this what we were meant to do? alas, we must grind for cash, but I grieve all of the art and magic that people are not making because they are in a desperate race for money. And I think that's like a really important thing because that was, that was my goal. I wanted to hit numbers. I wanted to hit titles. I wanted these things, but then you get it and you realize that you're still the exact same person. And I had a wonderful mentor when I was at Amazon, like literally, and I knew it. I knew what she was saying was true. She was like, it's not going to feel different. And I can't tell you that until you'll believe it. Like you're just going to have to experience it, but just know that. So then when it happens, it can click 
And then you can recover, essentially. And I will say, I had a positive experience at Amazon. I know a lot of people don't. So I'm, I get that. Yeah. It's its own monster. I still needed to see a therapist to come down off of the, I don't want to call it brainwashing or Stockholm syndrome, like whatever it is that allows you to work at the output that you have to, to maintain success at Amazon. You're either a certain type of personality where that doesn't bother you and you can somehow maintain your job at Amazon or you're me where I was, you know, I have to assume that they saw all of my flaws and realized that can be shaped into a very good, consistent worker And then, you know, coming down off of that and really realizing, I love that the things that you said and what you want in life, none of those were revolved around things you can buy. I know. So it's like, but it's getting to that realization. And I honestly think for me, it was aging and experiencing some of these things to be like, this doesn't matter to me as much or getting the things that I thought would be life changing. And then it was the exact same. I was still unhappy. Yeah. So looking at like, what are the things that make me happy? And to be fucking honest... It's my freedom and my choice of creating my days, of being able to come do this with you, of being able to skip out and take a 9.30 yoga class because I started work a little bit earlier because I've managed my time so well that I don't have to do work from 7 in the morning to 6 o'clock at night. I know. And we know now that... So the actual research, which is from the... I want to say it's called the... The Psychology of Happiness, the Happiness the happiness Advantage, that's what it's called. Sean Archer, he is a, well, he's an author, certainly, but I think he is a professor also, I want to say. Either way, Yale, Harvard, one of these higher Ivy League Somewhere I didn't go. Somewhere I did not go, teaches a class on happiness psychology now. And essentially, happy, money only impacts your happiness until your needs are met. Once your needs are met... There is no measurable increase in your happiness based on your income. So really, it's just about getting to that baseline. And then you have 10% of your happiness is your status and your financial wealth, etc. 40% is your, or excuse me, 50% is a genetic set point. And then 40% is intentional activity. And that is where what you're talking about, the freedom to design your day. You know, when I talk about exercising in novel ways, all of those things are the measurable um, differences in happiness. What is the other one? Altruistic activity. Like that is the most critical thing you can do to make yourself happier is help other people. Yeah. But people don't really talk about that because it's a consume, you know, the capitalist society, the consumer society. Because you're not society. getting anything out of it, quote, quote, yeah. but it's your actual fueling your own happiness where like, again, something you can't buy and something that's somewhat immeasurable. It's not a KPI, yeah. right? And I think that's a really hard thing for where we're at in society and in the workforce to like handle, to like accept. I know. And, you know, I think these, these conversations are getting more commonplace the redefinition of success is, you know, everywhere now as we're heading into this employment crisis where nobody, everyone is saying that nobody wants to work. Although, mind you, newspaper headlines have been saying that no one wants to work forever, right? I, I, I feel the, that. That machines are, well, and people don't because we weren't evolutionarily designed to work beyond just creating things that benefit our own lives and help our communities, you know? So, I mean, 
evolution is still happening. I'm sure things are changing. I'm sure we're negatively impacting ourselves with our drive to productivity in many ways. We are. I don't think it's, like, even a speculation. Well, we, yeah, certainly. But I just meant as far as, like, the trajectory of evolution. We're evolving towards needing to work more or Or something, right? (laughs) De-evolution. Ugh. Yeah. Well, anywho. Work is only a small part or should only be a small part of our existence and we have allowed it to become most of our existence well because it's something to complain about that doesn't involve the other things which is what yourself and your surroundings yeah totally which is touchy i know because you have to admit that maybe decisions that you've made or the partner you've chosen or things like that didn't work out the way that you wanted them to or that you thought they were going to. Because no one heads into a situation, I have to assume, thinking, I'm fucked. This is going to fuck me. <laughs> this right? is going to fuck me. Well, and I also think that the distraction of work means there people make much worse decisions when it comes to lifestyle creation and your extracurricular activities. You know, what we've talked about in the past about coping band-aids substances alcohol weed of course you know all of those things are band-aids for the stress and overwork and we use those to take the edge off because we have so much edge but then the edge is off and we're just like letting all these other things happen to us when ultimately these other choices that we're letting happen to us who we are just dating that we're like oh we'll just stay with this person because it's easier than going to find a new person whatever all of that just breeds these lives that ultimately people aren't fully fulfilled in And if you could amend the idea of success so that it isn't so job focused, then maybe people, you know, it would spill over into these other lifestyle choices and everybody would feel a little bit happier. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's true. And I think that there has to, I mean, through quiet quitting, quiet firing, all of that shit coming to like be something where people are talking about, you know, we've talked in past episodes about having the conversation being the first cornerstone to the change. Change. Yeah, I know. And I, it will be interesting to see what happens as Gen Z becomes the bulk of the workforce. Because you, I'm, you know, again, we're in this bubble in the Pacific Northwest where things look very differently. My upbringing, you know, in the area that I grew up in, all of the parents looked like they didn't have jobs, basically. Like, they all seemed rich with no jobs. And I know that's a crazy generalization. But basically, this you know, small enclave of Washington where the Bill Gates of the world live and it's all, you know, Steve Ballmer, all these executives are in this area that have insane jobs ultimately that require a ton of them. And yet they're always present in their kids' schools and doing a lot of vacations because so much of their work was already remote. This is in the 90s and early 2000s, right? And it was just like such a different way of existing where, it just looked like everybody was rich without working, for lack of a better way to but describe it. But that's kind of how it happens at some point, because yeah. you use your past experiences to cultivate a persona to be able to intercept the hard stuff that the people below you don't know yet. And I mean, yeah. literally offline before starting to record this episode, we were both talking about ways that we've scaled our own businesses so that we can work less in the effort to appear more present with our children totally and in charge of our own self-help self-care however you want to say it our workout routines we're making space for them because we realize that the nose to the grindstone isn't a way to achieve happiness thankfully relatively early in age yeah well and this is privilege right too that you know we're able that upbringing that i had 
ridiculously privileged to be able to experience that at all. But the reason I bring it up is because now you're about to have this whole generation come up who has grown up on social media basically seeing the same thing. So instead of seeing it in this like small group of privileged neighborhood. IRL. Yeah, IRL. Now you have like basically an entire generation that thinks they can be successful without working, kind of. This like remote work concept and the four-day work week and the selling stuff on Amazon. All of these, I mean, at least in the entrepreneurial circle I see and follow and whatever, everybody is like, oh, you can do internet stuff and be rich. So who's trying to learn to be an electrician and who is, you know, becoming the next trash collector in your neighborhood. See, and but that's what I want to like start doing now, right? Like, You want to be wanna, a trash collector? Yes. No, I'm not kidding. This is like where I want my trajectory to go. Oh, it's Leon like, would love that. By 40 is that's my goal is I want to be done working for like a living, so to speak. I can have however smart I've been able to be with the money that I've amassed from the fucking grunt work. Yeah. Because I will say my work in the grunt work has made me where I'm at today. So I can't discredit that. But I do think it's important for people coming up seeing, uh, I want to call it maybe more effortless income happen. That that's still not going to be, you're still going to have to work hard. Like I liken it to people who haven't worked in the service industry. Like I sometimes think that like I learned the importance of how you treat everyone by -hmm. working in the service industry. If I, I, I met, this person and it's a friend's husband and I don't we don't really see them anymore because I saw how he acted towards servers and I was like I could never be you could never fix what I just saw how you treated that person yeah oh my god so I do think there's so much merit in the grunt work that being said I will not go back to it I would I would do anything but but my point about trash collecting and like where I want to go is like, I want to paint the uh, lines on the freeway. I want to do stints of these different jobs yeah. that fulfill me in ways or continue to teach me. Because the continual learning, I think, has been really a something that has been really recurring in all of my different roles. Even all of the ones within retail, right? Yeah. Working for retailers who have different pricing strategies than others. Working in white label, working in, you know, licensee situations, working with brands from an Amazon outward perspective, working the opposite then from a brand to Amazon perspective. Continually learning to look at things in more than one dimension is what's kept me in this game longer. But what I'm finding now in my career is the things that I'm doing out Outside of, I would call it the applicable trades that I've been involved with are what give me more insight into what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis because it's different. I'm probably taking it with a bigger grain of salt or as from a different experience perspective because it is so different and my mind craves that change. Yeah. I should add to my definition of success, the freedom to learn, you know? Yes. Like, to me being successful is being able to follow your curiosity and chase the interest that you have in the moment and go spend an entire afternoon listening to an audiobook on something that fascinates you because you heard about it on a podcast and you want to go check it out. Now, by the way, guys, I hope you all go check out The Happiness Advantage because that book talks all about the science behind happiness and will just give you more concrete information about just what actually does impact your happiness and not. And I think talking about priorities, definitions of success, work-life balance, all of that, 
can be so helpful when coupled with the science behind it, you know, so that you can actually, I don't know, take better intentional action to shape all of those areas of your life and ultimately feel better about yourself. I think that book's actually on my Audible wish list. <laughs> it's really good. Also, the documentary Happy on Netflix, I don't even know if it's, I hope it's still on there. It has to still be on there. Uh, that is where, well, they, they go hand in hand. I think, you know, maybe that's that's where we leave you guys. Go check out the documentary Happy so you can learn more about what actually defines your happiness. I know that's not related to work, but it is. In it that, is. In that right now, so much of our lives revolves around work. And how can we change that conversation so that people focus more on life themselves, themselves and the things that are important to you besides earning the money that you need? Because you're right. Once you have shelter, once you have transportation, once you have food, once you have love, it kind of is like, not what else do you need, but how do you bring things into your life to complement that? Yeah. Well, if you guys have any tips on how you maintain the best work-life balance, we want to hear them. Popmomspodcast at gmail.com. Send us everything. What does your work day look like? How? What are your productivity hacks? We want it all. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.